Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report podcast. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan, here on this 18th day of February 2013, and I'd like to welcome you to the second ever edition of this podcast audio series of Film, Literature, and the New World Order, wherein every month we are exploring different works of literature, different movies, and analyzing them for their context, their subtext, uh, their pretexts, and their text themselves to try to find out what uh, what we are being told to believe, what we uh, actually do believe, what is being predictively programmed into us, and all of the other very interesting things that we can glean about the structure of the New World Order as it comes into view, to use George H.W. Bush's words, and uh, as that comes into view in our pop culture entertainment. And that is an interesting approach and an interesting way of approaching these issues that's a little bit different than our news and politics type talk. So I hope you guys are enjoying this series and will continue to do so. Once again, this is being released on the third Monday of every month, and we do uh, announce what will be next month's movie and or book uh, ahead of time so that you have time to go out and read and or watch the material in advance. So for those of you who missed last month's premiere conversation, the the pilot episode of this podcast series where we talked to Aaron Franz of theageoftransitions.com about Jack London's Call of the Wild, I will put the link to that uh, first episode in the show notes so you can go back and listen to that if you so desire. And if you are here, uh, and if you were here last month, hopefully you did get the memo that we are talking about Syriana today, the 2005 film from writer-director Stephen Gagan. And hopefully you've gone out and watched it, because uh, we're not going to do a lot of time on plot synopsis, so... If you haven't watched it yet, this podcast probably is not for you. So I suggest you go out and watch it before you listen to this podcast as we delve straight into it. But I understand even for those out there who have watched it, I understand this is not the easiest movie to follow. And it does require a bit of plot summary or synopsis for many people because there are so many different threads, so many different characters. There's a lot of situations that are left somewhat up in the air and there's a lot of ambiguity and there's a lot of confusion. And I think there is an artistic reason for that which we'll get into later. But at any rate, again, as I say, there's a lot of people out there who I understand do need a little bit of help with the plot. So if you are one of those people, I do suggest actually the IMDb, the Internet Movie Database, not only has a, a very good plot synopsis, which goes through point by point, of it, all the characters and their storylines, where all, what they're doing and how all these storylines intersect. I think it does an excellent job of that in just uh, a thousand words or so. But also the uh, extremely admirable plot summary written by Jay Haley at Hotmail.com, who uh, writes a 100-word summary that is, I guess, pretty pretty good at uh, encapsulating the gist of this movie. So I'll just read that so that we're all on the same page about the, the overall arc of this story. This plot summary says, quote, A missile disappears in Iran, but the CIA has other problems. The heir to an emirate gives an oil contract to China, cutting out a U.S. company that promptly fires its immigrant workers and merges with a small firm that has landed a Kazakhstani oil contract. The Department of Justice suspects bribery, and the oil company's law firm finds a scapegoat. The CIA also needs one when its plot to kill the emir apparent fails. Agent Bob Barnes, the fall guy, sorts out the double cross. An American economist parlays the death of his son into a contract to advise the sheikh the CIA wants dead. The jobless Pakistanis join a fundamentalist group, and all roads start and end in the oil fields. 
Which, as I say, again, is a pretty admirable plot summary for being so very brief about so many different threads and characters and motivations and storylines that are going on. And as I say, it is somewhat confusing, and it certainly demands... This is a movie that demands much more than most Hollywood movies demand of its viewers. You are certainly not spoon-fed the plot, and you are not uh, given a handy-dandy guide of white hats and black hats so you know what side to root for, and the ending is ambiguous at best and quite uh, disheartening at worst, and there's a lot of uh, strings and, and threads that, that seem very bound up together, and, and some of them go to nowhere. So it is not an easy movie to unravel. So it, to that degree, I think it's it's quite interesting. But I think, again, as I say, there's an artistic reason for this, because I think with any accurate representation of the geopolitical intrigues that go on at the level that this movie is trying to portray, there is a lot of confusion. And nobody has the bird's eye view of all of the events that are going on, all of the characters, all of their motivations, and how they all tie together. So to that extent, uh, it is going to be confusing for anyone who inserts themselves into to this storyline and a lot of it has to be inferred and sussed out and and implied rather than explicitly stated so i think this uh, this movie to that extent actually does an admirable job of portraying that confusion that really does exist in this geopolitical sphere so to that end i think it not only makes sense i think it actually works artistically and as a movie i think it uh, well it's it's certainly not uh, not the standard Hollywood fare, but I would say it's an interesting movie at any rate and is thought-provoking on a number of levels, and I hope you thought so too. So let's start exploring some of the things that this movie says and some of the things it does not say. And perhaps the most obvious place to start is the most glaring omission of sorts in this movie, which is the fact that in the entirety of the movie, the word and the name Syriana does not appear anywhere. No one says this and no one talks about it, so... The question, obviously, is what is Syriana? It is not the name of a country, so what is it? Well, the answer for that, let's turn to a, an interesting resource, filmeducation.org, which is a t charity in the UK that uh, supports the UK film industry by developing curriculum for use, I guess, I, I suppose, in the UK school system to do with film and cinema. And you can go and read more about this organization at filmeducation.org. I find its very existence to be somewhat interesting, but um, it also has a handy-dandy guide to Syriana and how to use Syriana in the classroom as the basis for discussion. So it, for example, in this guide, it asks uh, certain questions that might be appropriate for dissection in the classroom, such as, what do you feel might be the danger, if any, of trying to force countries to accept U.S.-style democracy? Which is a fairly ridiculous question, but at the very least, I can see where they're trying to go with that. Or another question, uh, example, do you think it is justified for U.S., British, or any other governments and their agents to do unpleasant and illegal things abroad in order to protect their own interests and preserve their authority in the world? Which is a leading question in a number of ways, but again, I think it is at least possible to extract some interesting conversation from those types of questions. So I'll let you look over that guide to your heart's content, but I just want to focus on the part where they talk about the title of the movie specifically. And here it says, quote, Syriana is a term used by Washington think tanks to describe a democratic, western-leaning, business-friendly Middle East most suited to U.S. commercial and political interests. In the film, it is the kind of term likely to be bandied about at the meetings of the Committee for the Liberation of Iran, 
the shadowy organization that brings neoconservative politicians and business people together to plot regime change in Iran. End quote. Well, that is, uh, that is, of course, very much apropos to this story and what's at the heart of this story, which, as anyone who has watched it, is how the oil interests combine with the political maneuverings to try to influence the govern governance of various Persian Gulf states and Middle Eastern and Arab states for the interests of the very few at the expense of the very many. I think that's broadly the, the idea of what's happening in this story. And thus Syriana, this idea of the creation of a, a business-friendly Middle East is very apropos to that. And if that starts to conjure up ideas of, for example, drawing up the map to suit your whims in such uh, style as the Sykes-Picot Agreement following World War I, then congratulations, you are a devoted listener to the Corbett Report and no doubt are recalling our uh, previous podcast episode on how to uh, redraw the, the map. Um, so I will direct people back to that previous podcast episode so you can listen to more about the real history of how the the map of the Middle East was literally literally drawn in drawing rooms in uh, the courts and the uh, the the palaces of Europe in the wake of World War one and has no reflection of the political realities on the ground really but that being what it is the, this idea of this shadowy organization that's mentioned in this filmeducation.org pamphlet the committee for the liberation of Iran is interesting. It only makes a sort of tangential appearance in this movie, but I hope people did pick up on it. There's this shadowy committee that's looking over Bob Barnes' uh, shoulder as he's briefing uh, U.S. Congress about um, the CIA's activities in in Iran and the Stinger missiles that went missing at the beginning of the movie. And this committee is kind of introduced as just the shadowy figures that are sitting there and are tied into the, the political slash oil business interest matrix there. And the idea is that this is some sort of political organization that's looking to overthrow the Iranian government and there's a lot of political slash business clout behind it. And I think for anyone who was watching this movie when it was first released in 2005, as I myself did actually, uh, was probably thinking of this in the context of Iraq and the Committee for the Liberation of Iraq and all of the shenanigans that went on in the run-up to the Iraq War and the people that the U.S. were using as their guides to um, to try to reshape the Ara Iraqi political landscape after the, the fall of uh, Saddam and all of that uh, nonsense that I'm sure was very much front and foremost in the center of most people's minds when they were watching that movie in 2005. But in our own present political context, perhaps it would be most uh, beneficial to take this Committee for the Liberation of Iran quite literally at face value talking about Iran, because it should be noted that this is not some sort of theoretical entity. It's actually very much like what is happening right now in fact even today in fact just earlier today this came this interesting story came across the news wires uh including reuters iranian dissident group is viable opposition says u.s congressman i will let you guys read through this uh, article on your own i'll link to it in the show notes for this episode but uh the long story short is that a bunch of u.s congressmen including dana rohrabacher is trying to take the obama administration to task for not putting enough support behind this Iranian dissident group called the NCRI, the National Council of Resistance of Iran, although they might as well be called the Committee for the Liberation of Iran, because I think it is very much like those types of interests we see in rep represented in the movie. And for those who don't know, this is a group that is headed by Mariam Rajavi, 
And if that name rings a bell, then congratulations, you've been paying attention to the eye-opener reports, where last year we had a report on the MEK, the Mujahideen-e-Kalk, which was a U.S. State Department terrorist-listed uh, terrorist organization that was delisted last year, thanks to lobbying by people like Rohrbacher and others, John McCain and, and other congressmen who are obviously bought and paid for by various political lobbies. And this org terrorist organization, which has admittedly committed terrorist attacks on civilians inside Iran, is now openly being supported by much of the U.S. Congress. And now Congress is even trying to lobby for the U.S. government to openly, exclusively uh, try to talk to this terrorist group specifically. And, and this Reuters article really has to be read to be believed because it even goes on to admit that Rohrbacher is even criticizing the U.S. government for not doing enough to protect this group, which, by the way, remember, it was a terrorist organization as designated by the U.S. State Department until September of 2012. But in 2011, they, their base in Camp Ashraf in Iraq was attacked, and there was not enough done to protect them, according to these uh, congressmen. Well, e again, not only is this a, a listed terrorist organization, or was at the time, but uh, this was actually taking place on Camp Ashraf, which was the forward operating base used by the U.S. military in their occupation of Iraq back a, few, a couple of years ago. They literally abandoned that base to give it up to this terrorist organization that's committing terror attacks inside Iran, because this is how the game works. You fund the terrorist organizations that are trying to kill the people you don't like. And in this case, America is happy to support terrorists as long as they're striking against Iran or Syria or Libya or whatever the target of the week may be. So this is all extremely interesting. And it, again, I think it's directly really reflective of what we see in this movie with the Committee for the Liberation of Iran. And it's important to keep in mind that this type of thing actually not only happens, but is happening even as we speak. And hopefully people will do more research into the MEK and uh, what that group is really about so that they know about what's really happening uh, right now inside of Iran. But this is the type of thing that the movie deals with. And as I say, I think it at the very least opens up the, the type of conversation that we can have about this and does so in an, intel in an intelligent way. So there is that to be recommended for this movie. But there is a wall, I think, that the movie runs up against in terms of how far it will go in really questioning the underlying structure and who's really on what side. So it eventually starts to come back to uh, not an easy narrative, not a pat narrative, not the type of narrative that we always see represented in Fox News and CNN and in 30-second news sound bites on the 24-7 uh, news networks, but still a type of narrative that I'm sure we can all understand by this point, which is that, yes, there are a lot of shady dealings that go on, and there's a lot of things that happen that are very, very much lamentable, but all this is is the the strivings of a few oil, rich oil men and their political cronies to increase their monetary wealth, and in so doing, perhaps they make some acquaintances and alliances with people who are shady, and they do things that are bad, like overthrowing uh, governments in foreign countries, etc., but they think they're acting in America's best interests, and this is all based on peak oil and struggle for resources, etc. So it tends to come back to that point. So let's just listen to a short audio clip from the movie itself where Prince Nasir, portrayed by Alexander Siddig, is talking to Brian Woodman, the character played by Matt Damon, about this pattern of uppity 
emirs attempting to change and democratically reform their governments but being consistently overthrown by the U.S. and how this means that from the moment when he decides to try to take over his country and do anything better with it, he will become a target of the Americans as, in fact, he ultimately is. My cousins aren't bright enough to be anything but finger puppets. And my brother has faith only in his own cunning. What do you suppose they're up to, my brother and these American lawyers? Tell me, what are they thinking? <laughs> what are they thinking? What are they thinking? They're thinking that it's running out. It's running out. And 90% of what's left is in the Middle East. Look at the progression. Versailles, Suez, 1973, Gulf War I, Gulf War II. This is a fight to the death. So what are they thinking? Great. They're thinking, keep playing, keep buying yourself new toys, keep spending $50,000 a night on your hotel room, but don't invest in your infrastructure, don't build a real economy, so that when you finally wake up, they will have sucked you dry, and you will have squandered the greatest natural resource in history. Come with me, please. I studied at Oxford. I have a PhD from Georgetown. I want to create a parliament. I want to give women the right to vote. I want an independent judiciary. I want to start a petroleum exchange in the Middle East. Cut the speculators out of the business. Why are the major oil exchanges in London and New York anyway? I'll put all of our energy up for competitive bidding. I'll run pipe through Iran to Europe like you proposed. I'll ship to China. Anything that achieves efficiency and maximizes profit. Profit which I will then use to rebuild my country. Great, that's exactly what you should do. Exactly. Except, your president rings my father and says I've got unemployment in Texas, Kansas, Washington State. One phone call later, we're stealing out of our social programs in order to buy overpriced airplanes. We owed the Americans, but we've repaid that debt. I accepted a Chinese bid, the highest bid, and suddenly, I'm a terrorist. I'm a godless communist. Dean Whiting, who represents not only these aggrieved royals and my brother, but also Connex Oil. They've been pressuring my father to invalidate the Chinese contract, but they underestimate him. This is about his legacy to his people. Another key scene in the revelation of this movie's political philosophy occurs when Bennett Holliday, who's the attorney who is investigating corruption charges in the Connex Colleen merger that's taking place in the film, confronts Danny Dalton, one of the uh, Texas oilmen who is going to be brought up on charges, so potentially on charges of corruption related to that deal. And when this uh, Danny Dalton fires back with a speech about corruption and how the system really runs on it. Some trust fund prosecutor got off message at Yale, thinks he's going to run this up the flagpole, make a name for himself. 
Maybe get elected some two-bit congressman from nowhere with the result that China or Russia can suddenly start having at our expense all the advantages we enjoy here? No, I tell you, no, sir. Corruption charges. Corruption? Corruption is government intrusion into market efficiencies in the form of regulation. That's Milton Friedman. He got a goddamn Nobel Prize. We have laws against it precisely so we can get away with it. Corruption is our protection. Corruption keeps us safe and warm. Corruption is why you and I are prancing around in here instead of fighting over scraps of meat out in the street. Corruption is why we win. I think from scenes like these and some others in the movies, we can start to build a picture of this movie's political philosophy. And I think it looks something like the liberal establishment hand-wringing over corruption that takes place in the name of assuring American authority around the world and the inevitable blowback that occurs as a result of it. And I think that's how we can read the ending of the movie, the attack by the Pakistani migrant worker terrorists on the LNG tanker of Colleen... uh, Connex Colleen. And I think that that is ultimately what the message of this story is. Isn't it tragic how these people are radicalized and these terrible things happen because of our interference in foreign countries uh, to protect business interests? And I think this is a narrative that people should be familiar with by now because it's, as I say, the liberal establishment, or at the very least, the, the lefter sides of the liberal spectrum will be allowed to voice those types of concerns. But I think in addition to this type of material that's presented, I think the real beating underlying heart of the story is that of Bob Barnes and his role as the CIA officer who's going around messing things up and getting embroiled in things that he shouldn't be while in the in the region. And of course, the the absolute number one example of that is at the beginning of the movie when he's selling these stinger missiles to the terrorists in and in order to sting them i guess one could say and the, ends up taking them out in an explosion but one of the missiles gets away and i think this is where we start to see the other side of this uh idea that's often painted in as i say the establishment criticism of the system which is that yes the intelligence agencies are doing what they can to protect interests in the way they can and they might have to get their hands dirty and deal with some terrorists at certain points but you know the worst that can happen is incompetence and eventually some of these missiles etc will get away and then the terrorists will use them to strike and that again is the establishment idea of this blowback theory of the war on terror that really 9-11 and other such things are the natural results of for example u.s military interventionism in the middle east and this is just the way the world works and I think the other side of this is that uh, exactly in co- in contradiction to what we just heard there in that clip, yes, we have to have more government regulation because eventually if we can just get the right regulators in there with the right oversight, that will fix the problem. I think that's the ultimate logic that we can get from this movie. But I think that the idea of this incompetence of the intelligence agencies when it comes to these types of dealings with terrorists, etc., is, shall we say, inadequately explored in this movie. And I think it's something that is not inadequately explored because it wasn't deeply considered. Quite the contrary. For those who don't know, this movie is actually based on a book by an ex-CIA agent. 
And that CIA agent is Robert Baer, who in 2002 wrote the book See No Evil, which was the inspiration for the story. And Robert Baer actually spent time with writer-director Steve Gagan in preparation for the film. So he had a lot of input into this movie. And yes, surprise, surprise, an intelligence establishment uh, person advising and being behind the scenes of a movie like Syriana. Who would have guessed it? Well, we can get more information about Robert Bear and his background and his input into the film and also what he thinks of the realisticness of the film from an interview that was conducted in 2005 at the time that the movie was released by NPR, which had an in-depth discussion with Bob Bear about his role in Syriana. So let's listen to that discussion. Syriana was inspired by the book See No Evil by former CIA agent Robert Bear. Bob Bear is the inspiration for George Clooney's character, CIA agent Bob Barnes, who at one point goes to Beirut and meets with an old acquaintance to talk about a visitor from an oil-rich sheikdom. He's traveling in Beirut. It's dangerous to travel. He'll disappear. I want you to take him from his hotel, drug him, put him in the front of a car, and run a truck into him 50 miles an hour. It's good to have you back in town, Bob. Well, when we heard that the real-life Bob Bear was back in our building, we thought we'd ask him about the movie that his writing inspired and help us sort out some CIA fact from cinematic fiction. Welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, first, how, how big a role did you have in writing the story of Syriana? A zero role. That was all done by Stephen Gagan, who wrote Traffic, as you know. Um, I had more of a role in introducing him to that world. Mm-hmm. We traveled around the Middle East probably for almost two months, oil conferences. We saw the spiritual head of Hezbollah. We saw oil, oil dealers in Nice, arms dealers, all, everybody you could imagine, so he could pick up the voices. And then I told him a lot of stories that weren't in my book, which in one way or another found their way into the movie. Okay, let's hear from you about some things that happened in the movie, and whether they're uh, historical or plausible. Uh, Bob Barnes, the George Clooney character, we just heard him uh, in Beirut, talking with a uh, an old acquaintance, I guess a former CIA contractor, uh, and they're talking about the abduction of this uh, independent-minded prince from an oil-producing state in the Middle East. Plausible? Such things have really happened? Or uh, a good fiction writer's uh, conceit? It's more than plausible. It happened to me. In 1997, when I left the agency, I resigned, showed up in Beirut, and there was a contract out on a Gulf prince. It was open, and people knew about it. He was hiding in Syria at the time. He opposed his government. He was a cousin of the emir of his government. He was a, a bit of a you know red diaper prince. He tried a coup in 1995 and was trying again in 1997. And there was an open. There was a, there was money being offered to to whack this guy. So it is plausible. This is the way the Middle East works. In this case, uh, the character whom George Clooney is uh, talking to is a former uh, colleague uh, from Beirut, but now he seems to be working for either Iran or Hezbollah or both. There are such people out there, uh, Americans who are working for Iran or Hezbollah? There are people that are doing individual contracts in a place like Beirut, Damascus, Iraq now, where you can actually find them. I mean, this is the the netherworld that the CIA works in. Plausible, yes. He tortures George Clooney. I don't want to give away the whole movie here, but but this fellow does. You know, pulls out fingernails. Uh... This, Accurate, plausible. Uh, this is this is a fictional story. Okay. I mean, we've had Americans tortured in Beirut in the eighties and the rest of it by Hezbollah uh, and Iranian agents. Bill Buckley, the chief of station, was tortured to death. Yes, it does happen. But again, you have to remember, it's Syriana. 
that that Stephen Gagan has taken like real characters and fictionalized their stories, carried them out through the end. Because this, at the end of the day, is a thriller, a political thriller. It is, and it, 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 it's people a very are fascinated movie, by it because it sounds so real, and it sounds real because Gagan went and talked to these people. I mean, he changed faces and names and events, but uh, and that's why there's such an emotional wallop at the end of it. The CIA in Syriana in the movie uses what I assume is a predator. A missile, a missile fired from a drone with a with a video image of its target. Now, I'd I'd been told by people who worked in national security that the CIA, in particular, was averse to this weapon. They didn't like this weapon. Oh, they are adverse to it. But remember, in Yemen, in in November, I think two thousand and two, you may want to go check this, mm -hmm. but they killed an American citizen. It was fired from a Predator and a Hellfire missile. There were six guys in a car. One of them was thought to be Qaeda, and they fired the missile. CIA, CIA fired. It 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 happens. So the agency got over its inhibitions over this over this weapon. Nine eleven changed everything. I mean, you, you it changed the nature of intelligence. I mean, how do we know the intelligence they're operating off of, whether it's accurate, as in the movie? Often it's not. And this is the problem with targeted killings: is you're often basing it on bad information. Biggest question I came out of the movie theater with after watching Syriana was, why is it called Syriana? You know, you have to go back to Sykes Pico. Where where the Europeans were sitting down and redrawing the borders and calling post World countries. War One post World War One, Iraq is a fake country. You know, it was it was three provinces of the Ottoman Empire was, you know, melded together. That's why we're having these problems there today. And Syrian is a think tank term. People want to create this fake country to help our oil interests, which which does at the end of the day, and. I, I think it's just it's 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 a metaphor that this Middle East is made up of countries with false borders. But does Syriana? Um, uh, this is a serious question. Is Syriana the name of the country that the the prince is the prince of? No, no, it's not. no. And that that, that, no that, that confusion is intentional because the prince never mentions Syriana. No, no, no one mentions. No one mentions Syriana in the entire movie. But that's the whole point. Have you ever heard Syriana before this movie? No. Well, go to the think tanks. They'll tell you about it, and everybody will have a different version of what Syriana is. And that's the whole point of the movie: is you have all these agendas running in together, running parallel, and no one knows what the guy next door is doing. Exxon Mobil doesn't know precisely what our policy is in Saudi Arabia, but it has its own policy. Bob Barnes, uh, George Clooney's character, at least inspired uh, by you, if not based on you. I don't know how. What what what's the the best adjective here? He is disowned by the CIA. Uh, I was disowned by the CIA in 1995. I was brought up on charges of attempting to kill Saddam Hussein. I was told not to have a lawyer, and I was at the end of it. The FBI told me this was a capital crime, and they could have brought charges against me had they wanted to. They chose not to. So Gagan has taken this story and, of course, rejiggered it, mm -hmm. and you, you do get cut loose. Did you find the uh, – when you saw the movie, did you find the, the narrative confusing? Did you, did you feel that you had to sit down and, and rethink this? This is the brilliance of it is I know all the stories. Mm -hmm. I know, for instance, about unitizing North Par and the, you know, the North Field and South Pars. It's a famous gas field in the Gulf. And I said, how is he going to hook all these things into Kazakhstan and all this? And I said – Damn, in the middle of the he's doing this on purpose. It's confusing. The guy at the Department of Justice doesn't know what's going on. That's why he can't bring indictments. The lawyer only sees a part of it, Jeffrey Wright. Clooney sees a part of it. And this whole world is what we come out with is consequences. If you sit in this movie and you try to figure out how everybody fits together and mm -hmm. when the action turns, forget it. This is not Elf 2.
<laughs> well, I'm sure for people who haven't seen the movie, we've even confused them further uh, by now. But uh, that's th- the whole point. I mean, yes. you had a smart, smart movie, and they want you to be confused, and you walk away with feeling the system's broken. Well, Robert Bear, thanks a lot for talking with us. Today. Thanks, Robert. Well, this is all very interesting and potentially very revealing for what it shows us about this uh, this movie and where it's really coming from and where a lot of these plot threads and the ideas for them came from, which is basically the CIA. Although, of course, Bob Bear is an ex-CIA agent, so he's not really part of the, the company anymore, as they call it. And uh, he's a free actor, and this was really all his own idea. But as we know, once CIA, always CIA, so you can trust him as far as you can throw him. But for those of you who have at least encountered Bob Bear before, uh, perhaps you might remember from previous episodes of The Corbett Report where we have featured some of the very, very interesting little tidbits that Bob Bear has let slip out over the years, including this one. Thanks for being with us. I'm going to turn the camera around so we can get a little bit of that light on you. Okay. If that's okay. Yeah, oh, that's much better. Um, I guess, Jeremy, did you want to uh, start with anything that you were... Yeah, I, someone mentioned in there that you had said something real quickly about someone should write a book about the white van. What did, yeah, you, well, mean, what did you mean by that? Well, there was an incident where there was a white van in New Jersey across from the World Trade Center. And five Israelis, probably Mossad, were uh, giving the high five after the World Trade Center was hit. And they were arrested and then immediately spirited out of the country. The investigation was taken away at the Justice Department from uh, terrorism and put in national security, completely sealed off. Uh, you know, if you can look at it benignly, it was the Israelis stumbled across this. supposedly found out about this from CNN or other TV stations. Do you think that's possible? That the Israelis knew and we didn't? Yeah. 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 I, mean, it's, I mean, here's the way it would work. They'd be watching, let's say, a Hamas cell in New York. They're all over New York. And they run into this guy, Atta, who's staying in an apartment. And he's talking about blowing the World Trade Center up. Now, an intelligence officer is going to say, hey, these guys are serious. Let's just go down there and look. Mm-hmm. This I'm like, doing a benign interpretation of this. Uh, uh, but no one's ever answered the question. No one's ever answered the question. Iranian connection to 9-11. Uh, no one's ever answered the question of Iranian sponsorship of Canab 103. The big national security questions are not answered. Well, I'm not proposing a conspiracy here. I'm just saying they're not answered. Well, we know 9 was a conspiracy. They, they're, they're too difficult to answer and they can't do anything about them. So they keep the information away. They kept the stuff 
for instance, on Iran and 9-11. They kept it away from the 9-11 Commission, of course. Well, the other side of this is that it looks like 9-11, one side of it is this cover story in terms of the networks in the Middle East, and the other side is a military operation. Well, look, can you give me the name of the guy who recruited the 15 Saudis? No, I can't. No, we can't because they don't want it out. But they, they weren't the ones who were able to guide uh, uh, planes into onto the Abu side Z- away from... Uh, Abu Zubaydah, one of the key guys, called Bandar in Aspen until the 10th of September and they started calling it on the 16th of well, September. What does that have to do with these um, military war games that were completely a mimetic of the 9-11 operation? Look, I'm just saying, I'm with day. you. I got a oh, question. Yeah. Okay. No, just, yeah. Maybe I, I just have a more common sense question that uh, I'm not really well versed in all this. There seems to be so many different um, areas that don't add up as far as the war games, as Jeremy pointed out, as far as the insider trading with the airline stock. And there seems to be a lot of things that point to, you know, the high-level uh, inside uh, aspects of our government or uh, well, look, pockets Keen, in the intelligence community's involvement. Keen and how do Gary, we they've all come out and said, it's in the 9-11 Commission that we don't have... These things need to be researched, and they haven't because they don't want people to know. So, it, given your Bush tried to stop sure, it. Sure, yeah, he did. He probably I'm just talking about the facts. I don't absolutely. I don't do. Yeah. We don't want to speculate on theories, but uh, you know, and the facts are very suggestive of it. Yes. They couldn't have been done without help from the inside, including well, these war games. I don't know who did. You, you, I don't know who did Line Eleven based on the official. But you speak as of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed as the mastermind of 9-11, and he had no way to plan all these war games that were the only way... I'm just taking out the 9-11 yeah. commission. Okay, I get what you're saying. He said, I, I didn't saying. work for Bin Laden. Okay. My question was, I'd ask him, who'd you work for then if you weren't working for Bin Laden? So when you say Khalid Sheikh Mohammed is the mastermind of 9-11, do you actually believe... Do you actually believe that, or is that? Are you just saying I'm just what quoting the story? The 9/11 is? Commissioner. Oh, okay. So, what do you believe, though? Because I mean, the national reconnaissance. My beliefs are irrelevant. Well, no, they're very important because the cover-up of 9/11, technically under the Constitution, Article Three, Section Three, is a cover-up of an act of war, and thus it is treasonous. So, we have to have these these answers. Anyone obfuscating the, what actually happened on 9/11 is technically guilty of treason and in, in in covering up an act of war. Why was there no accountability? Why didn't anybody get that's, That's a very good question. As well. right. People were promoted. Uh, people that towed the party line. The you people know, who down the, the FBI. We're not talking about me. We're talking Americans. If I were Americans, right. I'd demand answers. Yes. That's what we're trying to do. Yes. We're trying to well, have dialogue. We appreciate you talking with us. Okay, thanks. All right, Thank cool. you very much, And Bob. the last thing I would leave you with is National Reconnaissance Office was running a, a drill, a plane crash into their building. And you know they're staffed by DOD I know. CIA, the, right? I know the guy that went into his broker in San Diego and, and said, cash me out, it's going down tomorrow. Really? Yeah. That tells us something. That tells us something. Let's run the work in the White House. So here we go. We have a CIA agent who leaves the uh, the agency, writes book, tell-all books about his experiences, participates in movies that show CIA assassinations of unfriendly princes in foreign countries, and who apparently knows the person who knew the person who cashed out on 9-11, who, uh, when he knew about the attacks beforehand, um, what do you even begin to make of something like that and the fact that a CIA agent is going around saying this openly and that was five years ago now and of course nothing has ever come of that Uh, yes there's a CIA agent who openly admits that people knew about 9-11 beforehand etc but 
No one talks about that. Why not? Well, this is extremely interesting, but before we get our hopes up too much that this is the secret insider tell-all that we've all been waiting for, it's important to note just how friendly Bob Bear is to the establishment uh, media and how much he often appears on the on those media outlets to demonize America's enemies, including, of course, Iran. He spent much of his time as a spy in a deadly cat-and-mouse game with Iran. And he decided to put lessons learned into a new book, The Devil We Know. Lessons he hopes the new American president will heed. Iran is the third rail of international relations. You know, it, it helped Carter lose his presidency. It almost took Reagan down. It took me 15 years to begin to decode the Middle East, and that's living there constantly. And only then did I start to figure things out. What he's figured out is the time has come for a radical shift in policy. Iran is too smart and dangerous an adversary, he says, to remain our enemy. Iran took American hostages. Iran has backed terrorist attacks on American targets. You're saying see them as a constructive force? Look, I liken this paradigm shift to China. In the end of the 60s, China was going through the Cultural Revolution. Mao Zedong was one of our worst enemies. Yet, Kissinger and Nixon saw the opportunity to change this power around. We sat down and we talked to them and we made a deal, which has worked. Bear believes Iran is not what it seems on TV. An unpredictable extremist country driven by religious frenzy. He sees a smart, calculating leadership that presents one face to the world while working through powerful proxies behind the scenes. Ah, yes. Okay. Well, Iran is the biggest threat or possible threat to America, so maybe we have to start doing dealings with them like we did with China because that worked out so well for everyone. Yes, uh, Bob Bear and his, um, his take on Iran is, well, extremely interesting, and I think that we cannot look to him as an aide to spreading the word about 9-11 truth or anything of the sort, and the fact that he consistently appears as a talking head on GPS with Fareed Zakaria and such other outlets in the establishment media shows that he is very much still part of that establishment, regardless to the extent that he has actually broken away from the CIA and regardless to the extent that he might still be acting as their mouthpiece, or at least to the mouthpiece of certain elements of that CIA. Whatever the case in that regard, I think he still regards himself as part of the establishment and still acting in what he believes to be quote-unquote, American interests. But I think that is where we run up to the limits of Syriana as a a tool for evaluating what's happening on the geopolitical stage. As I say, I think it's quite a complex movie that does portray with more realism than I think we would see in any other Hollywood schlock the types of dealings and backstabbings and, and very confusing things that happen on the geopolitical stage. But at a certain point, I think this movie runs up against the easy pat answers that, oh, it's just a bunch of stirred up Muslims who are angry because of the CIA dealings and all of that's really only to protect the oil industry industry and oilmen in Texas and all of this goes back to corruption and there you go. So what we really do need is quite contrary to what the character is saying in that, that scene we just listened to, oh, we, we need government regulation, that type of thing. That One could see how that type of argument could be made. Uh, from a film like this. And this is, I think, where we start to run up the limits of the paradigm. I want to say that Syriana is something like second-order propaganda, if we can call it that. 
you might have the zero level or base level propaganda, which is really just mindless, rah-rah, gun-toting, action flick, uh, schlockfest that appeals to the lowest form of base patriotism and uh, the belief that uh, America or whatever country in question is the natural ruler of the world and they can go in guns blazing and shoot up the bad guys and save the day. And that's the type of moronic base level propaganda that is basically pumped out to the masses in a variety of entertainment every single day of the week. There's the the next level, the first level, I guess, propaganda, which is slightly more sophisticated and relies on telling you a little bit of the story and spoon feeding you a few of the main threads of the narrative that they want you to think about. And then well, ultimately you'll dismiss it because it sounds like conspiracy theory to question the the fact that the government has you in their best interests. So we see that type of first-level propaganda, for example, with the Alphabet Soup news media agencies, the 24-7 news networks that give you the little sound bites and little pieces of the story here and there, but inevitably put them together in a way that benefits the establishment. Then I, th- I would say you have second-level propaganda, like things like Syriana, that, that to a certain extent, they do question the system and the way it's run and the people who are behind it and the types of corruption that happens. But it doesn't question that at a fundamental enough level. It doesn't look at how the players who even, for example, in this movie, the the Islamic terrorists, are themselves dupes of a much bigger game that is used to uh, to do things that are not necessarily in the interests of the oil men per se. It's not necessarily in the interests of America per se or America's allies. It is in the interests of a much smaller elite who don't necessarily claim any such ties to any such nation state and who have uh, the types of vast resources at their disposal that means that money at the end of the day does not mean anything to the people at the very top of the system and that's how we have to start really delving uh past this layer layer of limited hangout propaganda and into the real structure of the war on terror. So, as opposed to this uh, basically large-scale, big-budget Hollywood production of Bob Bear's version of reality, I think we have to look at the real whistleblowers from within the intelligence establishment, the whistleblowers who are not being put on CNN and being interviewed uh, on the uh, the news and are not being used as talking heads, and whose books are not bestsellers that are not being pushed by the same intelligence establishment that they're supposedly going against. People like, well, say, Sibel Edmonds, who is, of course, as people know by now, the FBI whistleblower who has fought tooth and nail every step of the way to try to get information about her story out, who appeared on 60 Minutes once years ago in a little fluff piece that tried to make her story into nothing of any significance whatsoever, and who will never ever be featured again on any establishment media, you can bet your bottom dollar on that, who had to uh, to basically publish her book in complete defiance of the FBI, uh, and their their procedures for publishing books because they were never ever going to allow her to do so and who gets as i say zero attention from anyone and when we start to look at whistleblowers like that and we start to look at the information that they have for example about how the known al-Qaeda terrorists are in fact working directly for and with high-level U.S. government and American intelligence establishment and NATO officials to commit their terrorist attacks with the full knowledge, cognizance, approval, and authority of those groups. Well, then we start running into the real political paradigm, which is a step beyond Syriana. And that is a story that I sincerely hope will be told 
in an interesting, gripping uh, type of uh, feature film format someday by someone out there. And there are some examples of some stories that, that do a, a fairly good job of that. And for example, Who Killed John O'Neill is, is at the very least an interesting attempt at that type of narrative, but of course not a big Hollywood production. And I don't think we can ever hold our breath to see that level of detail ever being portrayed in a big bit budget Hollywood production, which is exactly why, as always, I think we have to move out of the current paradigm of waiting for the establishment to tell the real story of 9-11 and the terror war on terror and all of these things and starting to do it ourselves. So I guess this is a call to the would-be filmmakers in the crowd not to join the dark side and to go with the Hollywood establishment and to make that type of schlock but to uh, take that one step outside of the box and to start producing the type of media that will portray these types of very in-depth conversations like the one I'm currently having with Sibel Edmonds on the Turkey and Gladio B uh, option. And that extremely interesting story that goes straight to the heart of showing the absolute complete fraud that is the current war on terror narrative and if that could ever be accurately portrayed in a way that millions of people could watch and understand the story well what a thing that would be but we'll leave things there for now that is syriana and as i say it is very good for sparking debate and starting to get people thinking a little bit outside the box and to that to that end perhaps it is valuable as a way of sparking conversation with people but as i say i think it's the limits of the philosophy presented the political philosophy presented in the movie start to limit our ability to really question this reality so i will leave it there for now but i hope that you guys will send in your thoughts about syriana and uh, what you guys took out of this movie or failed to take out of the movie i'd be interested to hear it and on that note i'd like to share with you some of the correspondence that i received regarding our first conversation last month with uh, aaron franz about the call of the wild we had a couple of readers uh listeners write, write in with their responses to that conversation sharing their thoughts about the the story so i'll share that with you we've had for example uh, an email in from ronald h who writes Civilization is bigger than any one of us. Humanity struggles to discipline nature and bring it under human control, domesticating unsentimental natural systems of relations. In the end, nature seems to reclaim all but the shadowy vestiges of what was civilization. The vague memory of trust and loyalty, for better or worse, remains to tug at the reader. A reminder that something valuable is lost. But we are also challenged to see more clearly the limits of those sentimentalities. We are, in our habits, refined and soft-hearted, but we also are capable of acting on visceral natural instincts. Trust, an invaluable evolved capability among humans, also I think among other animals, but in a more institutionally unmediated way, is violated repeatedly in the book. Indeed, ultimately, the strongest bonds in this book succumb and are only retained through a symbolic return to the place of the master's death. We are left to imagine the call of the wild that sets each of us on the path of compulsive search for sustenance in the face of a natural world that is absolutely indifferent to any one life. The dog, and the reader, is drawn increasingly into direct confrontation with nature and away from ritualized masculinity challenges. Some very interesting thoughts there, and also an interesting email in from Lowell A., who writes, I believe we are created by a relational God to be relational beings, and are therefore always open to, if not actively seeking, meaningful and mutually uplifting relationships with others of our species. 
As a hunter of white-tailed deer, I know well the siren call of being alone all day in an immense tract of land after an overnight snowfall, following the fresh track of a buck in the hope that at some point during this day I will have been able to move stealthily, stealthily enough to get a clear look and possibly a clear shot at this elusive quarry while on his grounds and his terms. Not an easy task, and usually it is a game won handily by the buck. But it is the very travail of the hunt that will bring me back to the same woods again the next day and the next year to spend myself fully and freely for the pure satisfaction of having played the game fairly. And by doing so, I can still, for a long time, the deep longing for this to be... I can still feel, for the time, the deep longing for this to be my very life. Such is the call of the wild. All right. Well, thank you, Lowell. Thank you, Ronald, for your very thoughtful responses to our conversation about the call of the wild. And once again, I uh, wholeheartedly encourage you to write in with your comments or uh, questions about Syriana and also about next month's uh, topic, which is going to be The Secret Agent. This is an, a novel by Joseph Conrad, so I hope you guys will have time to go out there and read it before our conversation, which will be taking place on the third Monday of March. So until then, I'm thanking you once again for joining me for this edition of the Film Literature in the New World Order edition of the podcast, and I'm looking forward to talking to you again shortly. <laughs>